right, he's on top of it. Cool, cool. All right. Uh, we should, like, do a little intro. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. I always forget the mechanics. And it's been such a long time. We just start chatting, and then it's like, we're just chatting. It's like, oh, right, I'm going to turn this into an episode or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, welcome, listeners, to Dear Reader. I guess you're readers, too. Uh, I am Michael, one half of your hosting team. Hello, I'm Emily. Uh, it has been a little bit of a while. Just for no reason, you know. <laughs> well, we just felt like taking some months off. Global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Um, I don't know about you, Emily, but I found the first couple of months of the pandemic, it was really hard to get myself to do things like recording a podcast. Yeah, or reading a book for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, my reading just stopped. Actually, I entered my reading slump a bit before Christmas. Um, mm. I don't know why, no particular reason. Maybe because I went back to work then, but I was still like going home to nurse. So, because I do read a lot on lunch breaks. Mm-hmm. When I had lunch breaks, so I had no time there. And then, yeah, pandemic. But I've the opening of the libraries for me, well, you know, for curbside, has created a whirlwind. I have read, like, <laughs> I think 10 books in 10 weeks or something like that. I saw you tweet that the <laughs> people at the library said you're keeping them in business. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because, like, well, you know, I've, I've mentioned on the show before my kind of technique for books is if I if I see a book I'm vaguely interested in, I put it on hold and just wait to see what happens. Mm-hmm. So, like, the first day it was open, I picked up, like... 13 books and then a week or so later after you know people started returning what they'd had over the pandemic i got like another dozen or so and now it's they're coming in in dribs and drabs as people are reading again but yeah i get a call at least once a week like my kids have a library card but i just save their books on mine yeah now like i never used to put kids books on hold it would just be like see what's there but now that they can't go in, I'm putting, I'll be like, okay, everything by Robert Munch, everything by Mo Willems. And um, yeah, those are coming in now, too. <laughs> so, unlike yourself, I have not like got back into a big burst. I specifically read a book yesterday to have something to talk about with you today. <laughs> I don't know if you've been thinking about this, but I've been thinking about this, about... Things like the home front during World War II mm-hmm. or like the Depression or people living everyday lives during other sort of historical upheavals. Yep. Because um, I, I, I've often thought this even before the pandemic, but the pandemic really drove it in that like when people were sort of in concentration camps and fighting on the beaches of Normandy and everything, there were still people in like small towns baking bread, like away from the front lines, having as close as they could manage to a normal life, but like completely with the weight of like global horrors, like weighing down on them. Yeah. Like we're not the only generation to have gone through something like this. Um, I think Mm -hmm. what's different is that I don't like, there's no living people who remember the last big global pandemic. Yeah. Um, There are people of course who remember the second world war, but at this point they're super old. And they would have been like, it's not like there are like our parents had something like this. You know, they grew up. Yeah, yeah. The boomer generation grew up. I mean, not without their own trouble and strife, but nothing 
quite like this. <laughs> yes. So they have I, no frame of reference. I'm chuckling at the stolen valor that boomers sometimes get up to online when they talk about having lived through the Great Depression and like World War II. It's like you were born in 1953. Yeah, like, no. And if maybe you were born like 42, 43, but yeah, no. Yeah, it's like you were a toddler when the war was over. Come on. Yeah, like, like I imagine my my two year old and my four year old will have very different. I'm ho- uh, assuming this ends soon. We'll have very different, like, lasting effects from this. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, your younger one probably won't even remember He'll anything have no about memory. it. Um, almost certainly. Again, unless this yeah. extends. But my four-year-old is at the age now where memories begin to form. and he, His earliest memory may come from this period. It, it probably will. I think about that sometimes. Like, we went to... Badman Park the other day. We had this amazing day. We played and we got ice cream and it was just him and me. It was like a special thing we did. And I was like, maybe this will be it. <laughs> I be. hope so. It's interesting because, um, well, why don't we talk about our books? Do you want to go first or me? Because this, this is making me think about something in the book I read. Okay, well, if you've got a natural segue, we may as well have you talk first. Sure. Well, um, it's interesting. It made me think of something in the book I read, because the title of the book I read is W, or The Memory of Childhood, by Georges Perec. <laughs> so, thinking about childhood memories naturally was a segue to me. This was a book that was discussed on the most recent episode of our sister podcast, The Spouter Inn, where Chris and Suzanne sort of go look look at sort of air quotes great books um and this is chris's one of chris's favorite books of all time uh george perec is um well he's not living anymore he was a member of the ulipo which is a collection of experimental formalist french writers so i went into this expecting it to be very difficult and uh in terms of the language it was not it was an easy read but in terms of the content, it was quite emotionally challenging. Um, it's basically two very short books that, uh, at the surface level, don't seem to have a lot to do with each other. W is this strange sort of world-building fantasy about an island in Tierra del Fuego at the uh, southern tip of South America, which has this weird society which is structured entirely around sports. And at first it sounds really silly and fun, but it gets really dystopian and horrific the further along it goes. And it's interspersed, like they trade off a chapter, like chapter one will be from this sports society. And then chapter two is Georges Perec's actual memoir of his childhood. Uh, He was born to a Jewish family uh, who had emigrated from Poland to uh, Paris in the 30s. And um, both his father died as a soldier and his mother was taken to the camps and killed, but he was taken with some of his aunts and other extended family to live in hiding in um, Vichy, France. And uh, because his name had been sort of gallicized and his uh, first name can pass as Christian, uh, he and he he was basically made it through the war okay, but he lost both of his parents. And so he's talking about his childhood memories. And it's the the memory of childhood. That text is is very interesting. And like I find autobiography, generally compelling particularly if it is from these big historical events that we've all heard about and that we like you know we all read the diary of Anne frank and so forth this is nowhere near as um dramatic uh because it's it's basically this sort of bookish strange kid who's like living in uh various sort of situations that seem kind of half normal but it's I'm tripping over my words because it's not at all a typical account. 
Uh, he constantly is doubting his memories, and he tries to verify them with uh, textual or, or, or photographs or uh, records or asking his friends or his family members to verify what he remembers happening. And a lot of his memories simply seem wrong. Like, he'll say, like, I remember this happening, but the, the dates mean that it is impossible. This cannot have happened as I remember it happening. Uh, and things like that. And obviously... Traumatic memories are particularly difficult like that, but memory in general is so much less trustworthy than we think it is. And uh, just thinking about the earliest childhood memory, this book made me think about memory in particular, and how I think my earliest, earliest childhood memory, it might be like a sense memory. Like, we have two types of memories, I think. Uh, one is kind of narrative, when we sort of remember stories of things that happened to us. Like, I fell down the stairs at my aunt's house when I was three, and, like, that story is told, and I I remember it happening, but do I remember it happening just because the story has been told to me? And yeah. that sort of creates it. But then there's all these other things that I sort of think of as sense memories, where they're, they're not narrative, they're not an event, but I can remember a particularly sort of yellow sunlight that filled the kitchen of this woman's house, this friend of my aunt that my aunt and my mother brought, like, were visiting, and I happened to be tagging along as, like, a toddler. And I just remember this really yellow sunlight. I don't remember who this woman was uh, or why we were there. Uh, and nothing happened. I did not communicate to my mother the quality of the sort of warm yellow sunlight. I, I just remember that warm yellow sunlight. Or the taste of chocolate on Easter. Or things like that, that aren't narrative. They're sort of sensation. They're taste or they're, they're visual or something like that. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of wondering about the earliest memories of childhood. What's your earliest memory? It's funny you should say, because it's almost a sense memory related to Easter. The sense memory is being in my stroller at the Murray premises mm. and um, getting chocolate from the Easter bunny. <laughs> because they had, like a, a presumably, a guy in an Easter bunny suit um, to give out candy, but f for whatever reason, like there was nobody in the Murray premises that day. I don't... I guess... It was set up differently back then. I think there were shops in there and stuff. Yeah. Because, of course, right now it's a hotel, so there wouldn't necessarily be hordes of people um, just hanging around the hallways. But, um, yeah, and I, I remember them being down low near the ground and the motion of the stroller. Because, mm -hmm. of course, that's a really different perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I have no memories of being in a stroller, so I can only sort of imagine what it might feel like to be in a yeah, stroller. Yeah, it's, uh, like, it's, it's pretty vague. I think it sticks mm -hmm. because, of course, it was a fairly extraordinary thing. The Murray premises is a weird, not a weird building, it's a beautiful building, but yeah. definitely unlike any other building I would have been in with that, you know, the stone floors and the heavy yeah. wood. Stone, and... Yeah, exactly. For, for listeners who aren't oh, yes. uh, from the St. John's area, uh in Newfoundland. It's, yeah, it's this historical building that has like these big stone flagstones on the floor and this gorgeous sort of exposed wood beams. And uh, I always loved going in there when I was a kid because it was so different from yeah. the mall. Oh, it was a great place. And and of course, the fairly extraordinary thing of being like alone with the Easter Bunny unexpectedly. I mean, not alone. <laughs> Presumably my mom was there, but yes. you know, it was, so my, my first memory was, was a fairly extraordinary event like not in a good way or bad way just like this yeah. is super unusual 
Yeah, and when you're very, very young, like so many things you are experiencing for the first time, tastes, sights, sounds, you know, and I guess the world just seems fresher. Um, but it's it's so interesting because in this case, um, Parekh does not have very many memories at all before he was, say, 10 or so. And this is something that my husband... Uh, also has he always claims he has very very few memories from before puberty and i find that so strange i know i feel like i remember childhood very clearly i was going to suggest with mm-hmm. breck that it could be a side effect of trauma because that's yeah almost certainly i think uh, so but i guess some people just have poor memories <laughs> yeah. i don't think that anything particularly traumatic happened to my husband but in the case of Parek, i absolutely think that is a very likely thing um losing both of your parents in the in world war ii uh, <laughs> yeah living in world war ii at all <laughs> yes indeed the other part this w um is like this really strange thing so like the book is set is in like it's two stories and they have some sort of thematic echoes of each other but they don't ever really touch or intersect other than the fact that we're told early on that W, the sort of sporting island, is sort of based upon a story that Parekh wrote when he was 12 or 13, and he's rewriting it now, obviously. Okay. It's much more sophisticated and fleshed out than what a 12-year-old could do. But, like, this is this is an, a reality, an alternate reality he created when he was um, a preteen. And uh, <laughs> it's very strange. Like, uh it begins uh, almost as if a mystery, like there, there's this man living near the border with Luxembourg who uh, basically was a draft dodger <laughs> and who is living under a false identity. He has like false paperwork, a false passport, and it turns out that um, the person who is the real him, <laughs> uh, the, the person whose identity this is, uh, is a child who has something wrong with him. It's not really quite explained what, but, uh, and his mother is taking him on a voyage around the world to sort of try and, um, try and fix whatever might be wrong with him. He's very withdrawn and perhaps the, the correct beach or the correct town in South America or something might sort of bring him uh, to life and make him want to engage with the world more. See, those are two elements of like, like I know this isn't Victorian, but like holdover yeah. Victorian medicine where it's like, first of all, being withdrawn and sad is a very serious illness. And also, mm-hmm. you know, we should travel more to feel better. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it's like, well, if you if you feel bad, then maybe you should change your surroundings and you'll feel better. There, <laughs> like mean, there is something to that. Yeah, it's, like, it's not entirely wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is also like very privileged to oh, be able course. to do that. I mean, <laughs> we should all be so lucky. Oh Indeed. man, you want to know something weird I believed as a child speaking of? What's that? <clears throat> I believed that and I guess this was confusion about the whole Make-A-Wish situation, uh, mm-hmm. organization. I believe that if you got cancer, you would get to go to Disneyland. <laughs> Automatically. Did, did you believe this was Disneyland's purpose or this was just no, like... No, I thought that okay, was just okay. a thing. It was like, like, I was old enough to know that cancer was terrible and that Disney mm-hmm. World was not a good enough reason like to have it. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like I wanted it or anything. No. But I guess I thought like, okay, you know, you get diagnosed... You get your horrible, horrible treatments. You have your horrible, horrible surgery. And then because everything is so horrible, they're like, okay, yeah, sure. Go to Disney World. 
That was my <laughs> comprehension and understanding. And that I is actually, a more just universe. <laughs> I know, and I should be. Like, if you get cancer, you should get to go to Disney World. <laughs> I still, like, I was, I was shocked and dismayed when I discovered that was not the case. Yeah. So, uh, to get back to the book, um, the thing is, uh, someone from a, a, basically a search and rescue kind of operation has come to this town where this man is living to tell him that uh, the person who is the real him, the boy, uh, and his mother and the three or four crew people on the little yacht that they're sailing around the world in have drowned. There has been a shipwreck, but he has reason to believe that the boy might still be alive on a, somewhere in Tierra del Fuego, and he wants this narrator to like help search for him. And it seems like it's going to be the start of a really strange sort of mystery story. Like the they found the yacht and everyone on board had died violently, but the boy was just missing entirely. And and things like that, like, where did he go? And so it seems like it's going to be a real sort of um, page-turning kind of mystery. And then you get to part two. Uh, so, like, there are two stories, but there are also two parts. And part two is about uh, Twice as Honest Part 1. And it just completely seems to forget about all of that. We're introduced to this island in Tierra del Fuego, so same part of the world, where the society dedicated to sports has been set up. And it is in completely not narrative it is completely just describing the various systems of how the society works and it's and it's very sort of um mathematical uh it's very precise it's very matter of fact it's quite the opposite of the memoir that it's interwoven with which is very uncertain about details and constantly doubting its own account of things the sporting island is is very descriptive very matter of fact very world building which is uh, something i always enjoy so mm -hmm. i actually found it very engaging and at first it sounded really like cool and fun <laughs> but as it gets described describes things more and more it gets more and more uncomfortable uh, to the point where like uh it's like well where do the people come from like the next generation of athletes and so forth first of all all the athletes are men the women are kept completely cloistered in like uh area they're basically um domestic service and breeding stock mm -hmm. it's like a real handmaid's tale sort of scenario and I'm kind of like, well, women are athletes too. Um, but like the, the judging and the referees are completely capricious. Uh, and they might be like, oh, well, you won the race. But uh, this other person who like his jersey number happens to be the same as your time. So we're going to give him the gold medal instead. Like outrageous things that would never fly in the real world. And um like only the winners of the various events get to have dinner that night. Uh, and, and like it gets more and more violent and more and more dystopian and more and more arbitrary and cruel as it goes on. And, and the very end, you sort of realize that he's describing like a concentration camp. <laughs> it's like, and it was really distressing. And because the athletes are treated so incredibly poorly, like their performances are completely poor. Like the 100 meter dash is run in 23 seconds and the high jump has never been able to clear 1.3 meters. And, and the people are just worn out, rag and bones, like living this base animal existence, underfed, uh, completely ground down by the system that they are in and they cannot see anywhere outside of it there is no escape from this it's horrifying and i remember i finished it and i was like this guy does not like sports 
I was like, as someone like, okay, so like you and I are kind of secret jocks, right? Uh, low key, low key. <laughs> low key. Like not in a big way, but like we both enjoy amateur athletics and pushing our bodies. And like we have a little bit of an interest in a few sporting sort of things. Um, and like I I was a bit dismayed because I, I don't. I don't know that he's trying to indict, like, he's, I don't think this is the sort of stuck-up nerd saying that gym class is fascist, Mm -hmm. but, like, I did get a little bit of a feeling about that. (laughs) I was like, oh. I haven't read the book, but I have a couple of thoughts. Yeah. First of all, I mean, if if you've attended public sports or seen them on TV, you know that crowd's not far away from descending into total Florida the Flies. Yes. (laughs) That's a thing. But... When you were kind of describing, like, the concentration camp, I mean, we know that people were treated with, like, obscene cruelty and put through God knows what. But if it's part of a game and there's rules and a purpose, does that impart a certain logic to the whole thing that is missing in reality? Well... It, it seemed to me like what I what I know of concentration camps from reading other literature, like I don't know, Mouse springs to mind, is that they they too were also very regulated and regimented. It's just the rules were sort of applied in a cruel and haphazard fashion, and they could like Calvin Habal, but sadistic. Like they could change without warning. Yeah. Um. So like you know, uh, things like okay, we're going to make you carry all of these rocks over there, and if you drop them, we're going to like whip you. And okay, now you finish carrying all those rocks over there. Bring them back to where they were before. Go faster. Go faster. Go faster. The one who gets fastest will get extra rations at dinner. Uh, things like that are are things that would happen. Um, just sort of like. Cruel in the like playful in the way that a cat playing with its prey is sort of playful, um, but like because uh, one of the things I like about sports in general is that it is very mathematical. There are statistics, mm-hmm. and it's also very rules based. Like, and when the rules seem to be applied unfairly, um, then people get angry and. Oh, yes. Rightly so. Like, uh, whereas in this case, there is there is none of that. The, the rules are not fair, and they are not applied evenly or consistently. And, um, like, it does not have any of that sort of pleasing aspect of order being brought to chaos that I enjoy in, like, actual sports. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, like, hockey has rules, like, you can hit somebody here, but not there. But mm-hmm. they, those are enforced, even usually amongst amateurs. Yeah. And, and if they're ever enforced poorly or unfairly, like, there's a lot of controversy. Um, it's it's not like... Like, in, in this book, it's sort of given the sense that, uh, well, because there's always an element of chance and luck in sports, which is true, mm-hmm. um, that means that uh, keeping the athletes uh, uncertain... Uh, is really important, which is why this sort of like uh, unfair and uneven application of the rules serves that. Like they can't trust the rules because there is always a chance. There is always the element of fate and chance, which is dumb. But like that's the rules are there to sort of like keep that to a minimum. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I 
don't know that I enjoy. Well, actually, I do know. I did not enjoy this book. <laughs> I did find it very interesting, but it was not a pleasant thing to read. No. Well, I mean, Holocaust fiction really is. Yeah, but the weird thing is the memoir from the Holocaust was actually the, the easier, like, less <laughs> less distressing of the two. Yeah. Because Parekh's childhood experiences were mostly, like, living in abbeys with other war orphans, being sort of seen over by nuns who were not that bad to him, and who he, he became very, like, religious for a year or two there, and, like, sometimes we get to go to Mass with, with them, and, like, he really wanted to be confirmed, and uh, he was baptized, and so, like, you know, experiences that are unusual, but, like, he was not, as far as I can tell, he was not starved, he was not beaten, uh, he still had extended family around him, even if he had lost his parents. Yeah. Um, like, he, he there, there was Christmas, there were presents at Christmas, things like that, so even though the war is happening around him and it has made him suffer a loss, um, it's not the most harrowing like experience of World War II that I've read. Whereas this sports island with the the rapes and the cannibalism, like, I mean, it gets way worse than like, what I've <laughs> described. Like, that was really like, yeesh. Yeah. Like, this is a, incredibly unpleasant. I guess there must have been some drive in him, having not experienced the camp concentration camps, but to yeah. have them always, like at the back of his mind to, to kind of delve into it. I mean, there's, there's two ways to deal with something like that. I suppose yeah. one is to bury it and one is to like really go deep. And he chose the latter. Yeah. And I mean, his, his mother did die at, at Auschwitz, he believes, but it's very difficult to uh, verify. But his mother was taken and died somewhere. Uh, so, like, there is that kind of, like, what happened to your mother, like, you don't know, you will never really know. But it was something along these lines, perhaps. Like, Yeah, imagine. Yeah. Yeah, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> So that's um, that's my take on it. If you want sort of a more a deeper and more thoughtful and more scholarly sort of analysis of the book, which is like not, uh, I mean, content warning. Perhaps I should throw one on top of this episode as well. But like, it's not unpleasant listening. The, the Spider Man episode is really really good, um, worth hearing. If if anyone hearing this wants to know more about this book or just pick it up, it's like 165 pages. It's quick to read. I did it in a day, and I can't read anymore. So. Uh, what did you read, Emily? Okay, I read um, Trust Exercise by Susan Cho. Mm. And uh, this is one of those ones that I didn't remember why I put it on my list when I got it. Um, but yeah, it won the National Book Award last year. So that's a biggie. Um, but interesting, it's only got 52% on Goodreads. It's a very oh. controversial one, apparently. <laughs> well, now I'm curious where you fall on it. Yeah, I go back and forth, honestly. Okay, so I'll basically set it up. What it's about, mm -hmm. and it changes. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say spoiler alert for this whole thing, because I noticed a lot of the reviews I read, like the professional reviews, only mm -hmm. actually talked about the first 130 pages. Um, and the book changes significantly after that. So the first 130 pages are a narrative about a teen romance in this elite uh, theater school. One thing a lot of the people who didn't like it mentioned was how overwrought and overwritten it was. And while it was, I think the reason for that was to impress upon the reader just how self-important these teenagers were. 
You said it was a theater school, right? Yeah, an, an elite theater school. <laughs> they know what theater kids are like. <laughs> you have to audition to get into um, for 15-year-olds. <clears throat> and a teacher who treats them very much like adults. Yeah. Um, and they do these these trust exercises, which are, you know, in many ways kind of standard. Like there's... You know, there's trust falls and there's that and there's this motif that's repeated a lot where you sit across from somebody with knees touching and um, you observe a fact about that person like and say you are tall and that person has to repeat what you said. I am tall and just and then you play around with how you say it and that sort of thing that becomes an ongoing motif and it and that factors into the second part. Which is how things when the when the narrative shifts. Okay, so the the big focus is this this romance between these two teenagers and who are very sexually precocious as well as being, you know, these are kids who very much think of themselves as adults. So neither were virgins when they started dating at 15 and they have this intense summer thing. It falls apart badly due to, you know, very basic misunderstanding, but because it's never discussed, it becomes this huge elephant in the room for all of their classmates and their teacher. So during these like vulnerable trust exercise moments. And then on page 132, we shift perspective to a 30-year-old woman who has just read those 130 pages and realizes that she is and knows that she is a character in those pages but does not feel that her story was told properly mm. partly she's like and she's very specific she's like you know why was i you know, it was me. I had the car. Why did you say Joelle had the car? I had, you know, I'm the one who went to church. Why did you say this one went to church? Um, and also, but you can tell there's like a bigger element in this. Mm. <laughs> um, the last going off, the only time this character, Karen, is you really notice her. Like she's kind of around a fair bit. But the only time you really notice her um, is towards the end when you realize that she's having an affair with a visiting teacher who's in his 40s mm. and this comes up because the main character is having an affair with his lead actor who's like 25 there's a lot of this sort of thing and um in the next hundred or so pages we kind of explore karen's grappling with what happened something that confuses it a bit is that she decides to continue using the names the so-called fictional names from the first one. She continues to call herself Karen, even though she doesn't like the name Karen and that's not her name. She, excuse me. She continues to call a teacher, you know, Mr. Kingsley, even though it's not Mr. Kingsley. She knows who he means. Mm. And she follows this as she, you know, continues. She c decides to confront the, the author of the book, but they wind up kind of reconnecting in a sort of friendship. Um, she still talks to an, the guy from high school and she winds up having a chance to face the teacher she had an affair with when she was 15 and he was 40. Mm -hmm. I mean, affair is the wrong word. He raped her, but you know, in the first 130 pages, it's an affair in the yes. next hundred pages. It's, you know, this kind of unresolved trauma. Well, I can see like a precocious 15 year old thinking I'm capable of consent here. Exactly. And that's a lot of them do believe that. And that's one of the reasons these men are able to get away with what they do because mm -hmm the women don't realize they're victims until much later until they're able to like be an adult and look back on it. Um, and then the last 20 pages, there's a shift to, and again, spoilers, what I believe is the, 
baby of this woman who get, give, who had been given up for adoption when she goes to try to find out who her mother is. And she's not able to find out who her mother is or who her father is. She does go to the school to talk to the teacher, but she doesn't realize the connection there. She thinks she thinks she's just trying to talk to... She knows her mother went to the school. <laughs> and it's... Um, I mean, in many ways, it was very frustrating. It is very overwrought and overwritten, especially those first 130 pages. And those sh- those narrative shifts, I feel like they're not handled well. Like, it's it's super confusing. It's not like a couple of paragraphs and you realize where you are. It takes... Like, the first shift, it takes a good four or five pages to be like, okay, that's mm. who that is. That's what's going on. And the second shift, right towards the end of the book, I, I'm... Like, it's still not, it, it never really becomes clear what the frig is going on. So are these divided into sections? Are they like, they're they clear are. visual breaks? Yeah, there are hmm. breaks and they're like, they're page breaks and there's, there's no chapters in the book, um, okay. but there's these three parts and they're all called trust exercise. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really, it's almost like that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> like the well, reader, it, just trust me here. Exactly. <laughs> I think they, she definitely is asking for the reader to go along with her on this mm-hmm. and it's, it's frustrating at the end because you're sitting there like, okay, well, what what was that? Yeah. What happened? Like, I know, I, you know, I've always, I've never been a fan of the unresolved ending. I understand that's, you know, a literary thing. It's part of life. Fine. But this is, it's more than that. It's like, I, it's like I was sitting there like, I don't even know what I just read. Yeah. Like, you, some ambiguity about an ending is kind of like just, well, that's the way life is. But you yeah. want, you also want some form of closure. Yeah. And like I said, I can't. Like I get, I think it's meant to be like a metaphor for the ephemeral nature of victim stories. Yeah. And um, and how we never know, and you know all that sort of thing. Like you know, memory mm-hmm. is flawed. Like we talked about, people. There's the he said. There's this and the she said. And then there's just the things that people never say. There's fictionalizations of true things, and there's the truth of the fiction. So there's a lot there. Like yeah, it well, even sounds like the middle part of the book is like self-aware of that it is and it's it's very specifically so because um this karen character is very she's been in therapy for a very long time and she's the sort of person who really like she she goes through specific definitions all the time yeah to say it's like this is what this word means and you know she's like she's very specific and very precise um not about events but about words and statements Mm -hmm. about actual what's actually happening she's very vague so, like I said, it's it's a bit maddening that way. Like, I feel like it is. I don't know if another pass through the editor or an extra chapter would have helped or not. It's really hard to say. Even the last 20 pages cut might have been better because we still we, then we would have just had the two differing narratives. Which, yeah. And then you could sort of think about one passing comment on the other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you like about this book? Well, I'm always on board for an exploration of the long-standing effects of sexual trauma or emotionally emotional trauma, I should say from these affairs, because I mean, not to say this was my experience, but it is such a thing that some girls and even boys as well can be so bright and so smart and so mature and so far ahead that everyone involved might believe yeah, this is okay. We've seen that. But it's not okay. 
So I'm I'm always on board for this. And in and again, spoiler, uh, Karen did get a moment of revenge. Hmm. But then what happens to her? Like she straight up shoots him. <laughs> <laughs> that and is that, quite the moment of revenge. <laughs> yeah, and it's now it's a prop gun loaded with blanks, but it, it, you hmm. know it's close enough range that can hurt. And she went right. Yeah. and she oh, shot pe- him. People people have died from that. I will say I love this. <laughs> She shot him in the crotch, and he's wailing, and she says, you'll be fine, you just won't be the same. And I was like, you'll be fine, you just won't be the same. That is such, such a statement. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, you'll be okay, but mm-hmm. it'll be different. I can't, I, and, um, and the characters grew on me. Like, once I got realized, like, the first while I was reading it, I was like, you know, the descriptions of sex between 15-year-olds is distasteful. Um, and they have a lot of sex, and it's very graphically described. And they're so... And, like, they're not virgins when they meet. They're, you know, experienced. And I, it almost felt like, like I said, those beginning chapters, it was like... It's almost like she's letting them get away with this a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not till they're interacting with the adults more that you see, oh, no, this isn't okay at all. Yeah. No, but basically the the line was she was re- she's trying to read a book that is uh, Tropic of Capricorn or Tropic of Cancer, one of them. And she's trying to read it, but she can't really get into it because and she she says, like, if she understands the words and reads them, the meaning should present itself. But it's eluding her because she's not old enough for the book. She's not, yeah. you know, as smart as she is. Like, yes, she understands what all these words mean, but she's just not ready for this adult intellectual exercise. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the moment that was like, okay, she's reading the words, but she's not getting the meaning. Smart teenagers are like that. Hey, yes. I mean, (laughs) as two former smart teenagers, (laughs) like it's sort of like, well, I'm smart and I'm intelligent and I understand every single word here because I have an enormous vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I should be able to understand this. It's like, well, no, because there's an intellectual understanding of the words on the page, but then there's sort of a deeper, like, emotional sort of wisdom that only develops with time and experience. And sorry, kid. (laughs) Yeah. Like, reading Wuthering Heights when you're 15 is very different from reading it even when you're 20. It's Yeah. I I even remember something like reading uh, Mrs. Dalloway when I was 22. I was like, this is fine. And then again, when I was 26, which is not that much, 27, not that much of time, but like enough time that I was like, oh my God, this book. Yeah. And this, I guess this is a whole area of age. I'm just, I'm just so fascinated by this, this area where you're not quite an adult. You're not quite a kid. And I mean, we can stick labels on it we can say like okay 18 is the age of consent but there is so much back and forth and overlap yeah i think well i mean you have to have a line in the sand but in reality i should imagine like everyone sort of reaches that level of maturity at a different time you know and it's got to be like I, i read somewhere that the human cortex doesn't fully develop until you're like 23 24 I've read 25, oh, but even also so. cognitive decline begins at 30. So, like. so you have five good years. <laughs> but this is it, you know, like basically like, you know, all these kids are making all these decisions about their romantic lives, about their educations, about their careers, mm-hmm. and they're not fully there yet. Like if anything, the age of consent, I feel, should be higher. Mm. I mean, I, th- I think they should also have disastrous relationships amongst themselves yes but well because i mean that's kind of the only way you'll learn yes (laughs) that's how you get there but you know it's a situation like uh, it was one of those stupid reddit questions it was like 
you know, I'm 37. My 20 year old fiance, her friend is super immature. What do I do? I'm like, well, <laughs> don't date a 20, don't get engaged to a 20 year old. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Because oh, they're goodness. just not there. And this is, I mean, I think mm-hmm. I've talked about this on the show before. Like, this is your Monica Lewinsky age. This is your, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, she was a legal consenting adult, but that does not mean she was equipped. <laughs> well, I mean, and also in, in Monica Lewinsky's case, that is the most massive power imbalance possible on earth i should say <laughs> exactly yeah and there's but there's so so many i mean there's everyone who's ever dated a teacher or a professor or mm-hmm. even a ta yeah um so that i'm all I'm, I'm really interested in anything that kind of explores that dynamic in an honest way because it's very easy to say oh you know she was abused by her teacher but this is but taking it through these roundabout channels you realize okay yes yeah, she was and he absolutely should have known better. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not to excuse him at all and his actions. But you could see why she would feel the way she did. Yeah. Actually, there's a really interesting true life story um, about Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford. <laughs> I don't know if you ever read any of her books. If you have No, but they come very highly recommended. Oh, they're amazing. But the last one, The Princess Diaries, is about the affair she had with with Harrison Ford on the set of Star Wars, which is something that kind of, people kind of poked at a little before, but nobody ever, I think, really believed. Because, and she was 19, and he was in his 30s, and he was married. And she spends... She talks a lot about how hard she tried to come off as cool and sophisticated and jaded and cynical a bit and experienced and be like, yeah, I've done it all. I know it all. You know, I was at Studio 54 when I was 15, which she was, but with her mother. And she says it and and she convinced him. Yeah. You know, that she was cool and sophisticated and that this was fine. It was not fine. And yes, he should have known better. But again, she was 19 and she was really pushing this narrative of herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it asks a lot of men. I don't think it asks too much of men, but it does ask a lot of men to be like, no, like, mm. I should know better than this. <laughs> yes. I mean, I always have a weird feeling like from the gay side of things here because like relationships between younger and older men are very much a common thing in gay culture and like it's seen kind of as like a nurturing protecting kind of thing like oh you're 21 and this like 45 year old guy is going to sort of like show you the ropes for a few months and he's gonna like you're gonna it's like dan savage's thing like leave them in better shape than you found them (laughs) and like there is very much a like you're not taught how to be gay Culture doesn't tell you that. You're not given any models uh, in the like books you read at school or the shows you see on TV. And there's an entire culture to learn and a way of being in the world. And there is this kind of sexual mentorship, which to the outside eye can look a lot like abuse and grooming. And like those things are real and they happen. But like a lot of the times it's kind of like, no, like this sort of like 12 year age difference was like really important because that guy taught me so much like made me a more confident and worldly person and like that's the thing that happens in the gay world yeah it's interesting because in hetero relationships that paternalistic sort of thing can be very toxic but again that comes from a whole you know society where that mm-hmm. is paternalistic yeah towards i mean women. absolutely in the gay case it is paternalistic to the point where like people will also often love well, that's my daddy like yeah. they will that's like icky. that's the thing <laughs> Like that's my daddy, Dom. <laughs> I mean, not to call, not to kink shame, but <laughs> like, somebody oh. with small children. 
the, the whole yeah. daddy thing really squicks me. <laughs> <laughs> as, as someone who gets called daddy nowadays, I don't like it at all. You're not but old like, enough. It's it's meant as sort of a nurturing, like mm-hmm. positive sort of thing. Like, oh, I I'm a daddy. You're my boy, and I'm going to sort of teach you and like make you better and like give you structure and like I'll be a role model as well as a sexual partner. And like that's that's a thing that is in the gay sphere, which I don't think can translate to heterosexual relationships just because we live in a patriarchal society. And like, there is going to be a level of power, like um, I was going to say a level of power imbalance between men and women, which maybe is infantilizing towards women to say that, but like, but there's something there, you know, like, yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. But just to take it aside too, like you talked about how society doesn't teach you, how to navigate these relationships. And I, and I'm not going to comment on the gay, um, gay relationships at all, obviously, <laughs> but, um, it occurs to me that there is until recently, there's been no model for young women either. Yeah. Um, I mean, they see lots of examples of heterosexuality, of course, but they, they're, the messaging is like, find a nice guy and get married. Yeah. The marriage is the happy ending. <laughs> and he'll take care of you and that'll be it. And it's, there's mm-hmm. nothing to explain to young women, like how to, navigate men who are not careful with you yeah or things like oh you've been with this guy for five years now you got your happily ever after and things aren't going so well what do you do yeah exactly like and that's why i think one of the things that appeals so much about books like this because they are exploring that you know like when you've when you've made the wrong choice what happens then yeah oh like I'm so excited. Excited is the wrong word, but I agree so strongly. I think we need more stories about bad relationships to teach young people about how to navigate them. Yeah, like, I mean, there's plenty of stories where the girl, like, storms out and starts, you know, has a makeover montage and starts Mm -hmm. a new life. But, like, the navigating the emotional trauma and, like, and just to even, like, this book is not for a child, but there should be more books for teens to be, like... Mm-hmm. I need to, we need to get the message to them somehow. <laughs> yeah. To, to, to stick to your own age group. <laughs> and I mean, like, often, I'm also thinking here about how in, like, in Hollywood movies, there often is, like, in the rom-com, like, in the third act, when the male and the female lead are sort of, like, split apart, and, like, there's some sort of gross jerk who seems like he might get with the girl. But he's always obviously a gross jerk who she's yes. obviously not going to end up with. Whereas in real life, oftentimes, abusive people are superficially very charming. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you can't tell that simply. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was. I thought you were when you were talking about Hollywood films. I thought you were going to talk about the age difference. No, because well. uh, that's something that drives me. Like I watched this movie and it was mostly okay. It's called Eurovision. It was like Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. Yeah, but they're being portrayed as the same age. Like there's even a flashback to when they're kids. Mm-hmm. But they're ten years apart. Yeah, and, and like, that's not even all that big of an age gap for that. Like I, I can think of ones that are bigger. <laughs> I know, and I was like, but why not just like Will Ferrell's about fifty? Why not just cast a woman who's about fifty? Because she needs to get pregnant yeah. at the end. It's it's make, trying to make Will Ferrell look younger. And I mean, yes. I like Will Ferrell. I like most of this movie, but that just drove me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Anyway. Uh, I mean, that that's a big Hollywood problem, yeah. you know, that like... Uh, well, this is a this is a podcast about books. So let's, yeah, let's all right. Not I was about there. to start talking about Taylor Swift, but we'll talk about <laughs> yes. that another day. Yeah, but yeah, no. As for this book, I really don't know exactly where I fall because when I think about the parts I like, mm. I like them a lot. Yeah. But I can. I was so frustrated with that ending. Like I was actually in a funk all day. Mm. I could like I was rotted, 
I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's good that I kind of want to, I'm going to look up what other books were finalists last year. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, it, it certainly provoked a reaction. That's That's true. Better than just sort of being a blah book. (laughs) You didn't find it boring. I know, but the national book award. (laughs) There's another thing. So I was, driving today and thinking about this conversation we were going to have this evening. And I don't know why the book I read made me think of this, but it did. Um, Do you visualize when you read? Like, do you see things in your mind's eye? Sometimes. Mm. Definitely not all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're kind of on the fence there, because usually I don't, mm-hmm. but I... I am perfectly capable of visualizing things like if i'm lying down awake in bed i'll be like i'm gonna just gonna like doodle in the air with my mind's eye just in bored or like sometimes i will have very vivid mental images that i can see um but i do i don't see the characters faces i don't envision the room they're in none of that like i don't yeah when i'm reading it's not visual same like this one had a lot of you know in that overwrought and overwritten bits you know very you know sweeping descriptions that went on for pages of fairly basic buildings so you know those <laughs> yes we're very clear but no i don't know i don't in my mind like at one point i don't know how she the name is pronounced is it sade sade Shade? Yes, yeah. they compare the main characters looking like her. Mm. And um, I, I realized not only did I not think that, but I had no, I hadn't, I hadn't had an image in her, in my mind of her. Mm. And actually a lot of times I, cause one thing I do try to do is when I know a movie's coming out of a book I had planned to read, I'll read it. Yeah. And I try to, and I thought about this cause the images from Rebecca came out yesterday or day before. I try to avoid looking at the cast list unless I hear mm-hmm. about it. I mean, sometimes you can't help it. Army Hammer's going to do a thing. I'm going to hear about it. <laughs> but, you know, I try not to have the image in my mind because I kind of, and I've, I've had that happen too, where people are like, oh, that's not how I pictured that character. I'm like, I did not picture that character. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really not been a problem for me when I do see an adaptation because I'm like, oh, like, I don't know what they look like. Yeah. Like the very famous one, um, the Hunger Games. This, mm-hmm. you, you, this is you. You know this controversy, right? Um, no. Oh, well, remind me. I don't okay. really. There's a character in the book, a young girl who dies, and yes. she's described as being very delicate, and very mm-hmm. fragile, and she's cast as black. And there was a huge backlash. Uh, some people even saying it wouldn't be as sad when she died. And like yeah. in the actual descriptions of the book, I mean, they said she had brown eyes and brown hair. Mm-hmm. They didn't say she had dark skin, but you know. They didn't say she yeah. had light skin either. Yeah. And, but yeah. I remember this now. When we were talking about it, I was talking about some other people who read the books. Like, I mm-hmm. had not pictured her as black or white. Like, when I heard she was black, I was not surprised. Yeah. Well, this is kind of like, this is, I, I cringe. <laughs> My favorite fantasy books when I was uh, like 14 years old were The Wheel of Time. <laughs> and Amazon is making um, like a, a series of it. And uh, the sort of, medieval like england like rural sheep farmer people who were like the main cast is like coming from at the start of the book like they're all cast as black people which is 
so cool because the only thing I remember from the book is like the the defining characteristics of people from this sort of subregion of the world is they have dark hair and dark eyes. The color of their skin isn't ever really mentioned. So I'm like, yeah, well, these people have dark hair and dark eyes. Yeah. Check box, check box. Like, I don't see a problem. This is cool. Like, And it's so neat because so often in sort of very sort of high fantasy Tolkien inflected, like this is an analog from medieval Europe, blah, 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 it's like white is such a default. So I'm like, I'm loving that this cast is like so racially diverse and that the main characters are black. Great. Like Like, I have a master's in medieval history and it took a Twitter thread to for me to realize just how many people of color were living in medieval Europe. Yeah. Like I had no idea. (laughs) And I, I feel so dumb, but I mean, I'm, in fairness, that was, this was what was presented to me. <laughs> well, uh, why don't we do a sign off? I even forget how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Do we have a sign off? I usually just let you do it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I generally do the front and the back material. Uh, you're the professional podcaster. <laughs> professional implies I get paid. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been Dear Reader. It is a megaphonic.fm podcast. There are lots of other shows that you can check out, including two other bookie-type shows, uh, The Spouter Inn, which has an episode about the book I spoke about just now, and uh, By the Bywater, which is a podcast all about Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at DearReaderFM. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Earl King. Um, you can email us at DearReader at Megaphonic.fm. Uh, there's a Patreon where you can support production of shows like this. Patreon.com slash Megaphonic um, or Megaphonic.fm. You know what? You're all intelligent people. If you Google it, you'll find it. Everybody knows how this works. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.